You're listening to Irish Radio Candles Home and Abroad. Clifton House is an impressive Georgian building and it's set in the tranquil landscape gardens in the heart of Belfast. It was opened in 1774 by Belfast Charitable Society and the building was the original poor house in Belfast. And for over a century it was used as a nursing home and a hospital for older people. But today Clifton House is Belfast's most historic meeting venue offering an inspiring space for a wide range of events, including seminars, conferences, strategic planning sessions, and private fine dining. And Aaron McIntyre is here with me from Clifton House in Belfast. And uh, one of the things that it is a tourist attraction, uh, it has a long history, but they're also uh, engaging in some initiatives to share the stories of some of the people who pass through the doors of Clifton House. Aaron, thanks a million for coming along. Wonderful to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. First of all, like 1774, uh, we're talking way back, and um, there's a lot of misconceptions about life in Ireland, depending on where you grew up. So if you grew up in the south, there's a misconception that life in the north was probably a lot more uh, comfortable. And if you grew up in the north, you might have a perception of whatever of what life in the south might have been like. But obviously, as in any gathering of people in the form of a town, large town or city, there's going to be poor and there are going to be hard times. Um, so 1774, have, what, why was there a need for a poor house at that time? So during this time, you have Belfast really starting to become um, a growing town. People were coming in from the rural areas, and it was really sort of on the cusp of becoming that industrial city, as it would a century later. But the foundations for that were being laid in the 1770s. And the Belfast Charitable Society, who set up the Fur House, actually had been set up themselves nearly 20 years before, actually more than 20 years before and it took them that amount of time to raise the money because they were a voluntary organisation they were private citizens who came together and realised because Belfast was growing there was no safety net for people so people were coming in without food, without shelter looking for jobs and this was meant to provide a safety net for them so they set about opening up a poor house and Belfast's first public hospital where the poor could come up and get treated free of charge because in that period you would have had to pay for doctors to treat you privately. So as a poorhouse and as a public hospital, um, the medical care particularly, where was it being supplied from? And so again, that fell on the private citizens. There was no government intervention. So you have the likes of uh, quite famous doctors in Irish history, like Dr. William Drennan, who was uh, later to found the Society of United Irishmen. He was in the poor house doing inoculations against smallpox. Um, we have quite a famous doctor as well with ties to North America called Dr. James Camp. Or sorry, famous ties to a doctor called Dr. Uh, James Campbell White. And he was one of the first chemists in Belfast, and he was giving out prescriptions free of charge in the poor house. And due to his involvement with the 1798 rebellion, he flees into self-exile in America and sets up a charitable foundation that's still going in Baltimore today. So, again, it was the private doctors that were coming in to give up their services free of charge. Now, you just mentioned a wonderful word or an interesting word for the period of time you said inoculation we all live in our own bubbles of the time we we were born in and the time we live in and we think way back such things were not even words in the dictionary so um this is the, what kind of documentation 
were you guys able to find and the records that relate to this time and what information were you able to glean from it? Yeah, so we're quite lucky within the Belfast Charitable Society who still own Clifton House, uh, which we operate from. And we have our archive going right the way back to that foundation meeting in 1752. And when the poor house opened, we'd have all the our soil, the admissions books as well. So about the people who were coming in. And it's a wealth of geneal- genealogical information. You have, you know, where people were coming from, if they had aunts and uncles in other places across the island. And other times uh, we do have references to aunts and uncles who went to New York to try and get a new life um, in North America. And the evidence of the inoculations was quite um, just basic. It was just there in the minutes um, as part of a normal meeting that Dr. William Drennan had requested to do an experiment and provided that the parents and next of kin gave permission he was going to inoculate the children against smallpox. And that was carried out. And I thought that... You know, in terms of those type of experiments and inoculation being carried out, that yes, they got the next of kin's, you know, permission, but you know that it was quite exploitative to be doing it. And I came across in my research a letter between Dr. William Drennan and his sister. So for a time, he practiced in Dublin, and that's where his firstborn son uh, came into the world. And she wrote to him saying, please don't do any of your medical experiments on your own child. You know, this is your firstborn son. And he wrote back to her, at the age of two months, he'd inoculated this child against smallpox. We really believed in the power of what he was doing. And do we know, or were you able to establish what serum or how he, where he was getting his serum and, and what he was doing? So he was actually doing inoculations. So um, I only found this out recently is different from vaccination. So an inoculation is giving a small dose of the live variant. So he was, and it says in the letter, quite literally going out onto the street to a smallpox victim and taking a small amount of pus, putting it into a cut in the arm um, of the children, including his own. So it was a very dangerous experiment, but um, from our records, um, all of the children survived and were immune from uh, smallpox when they were older. Fascinating. So then you mentioned that the records indicate also where people were coming from and how this was being established at a time when Belfast was becoming an industrial city. And as such, we all know people migrate to where there's work. So how far afield were people coming from? Yeah, uh, because Belfast was a growing town and it had its own uh, military barracks, have a number of soldiers who were being circled around the island of Ireland um, and were stationed here. So we have um, a number of uh, children coming into the poor house whose parents were involved with the military uh, because the parents were sick or had passed away. Um, and we also have evidence of children coming from the likes of Cork and Liverpool. And we believe that they probably would have had parents or grandparents who were from Belfast, so they had that tie. And then in the later years, so when you're heading into the 1860s and 1870s, they're actually getting children being admitted to the poor house who were born in New York. The well, parents have come back home. And they had entered the prayer house because they'd fallen in hard times when they came back to their native place. So there's people from right across Great Britain and Ireland using the prayer house here in Belfast who weren't a parochial institution. The children were also going out all parts, sorry, the children were going out to all parts of the globe. And I'm ahead of our interview and how do we look in our archives to put out some of the children who were actually apprenticed. 
mm-hmm. in Canada, of mm-hmm. all places, from Belfast. So in the 1820s, we have three young boys, um, John Delaney, Horatio Laird, and John Monaghan, who leave Belfast and set out with some of our board members who are immigrating to Canada, and they go out to be uh, farmers. So there's a wealth of information we need to try and trace what happens to these individuals to make it married, and there's so many opportunities there. Um, the other thing then being the poorhouse itself, uh, again, as I said earlier on, you know, we come from preconceived notions and particularly uh, in the last hundred years with the establishment of the state of North of Ireland and the South of Ireland um, and the religious divide that exists. Was there a religious aspect to the poorhouse? In terms of uh, the background of our board, when we were founded in 1752, the majority were Presbyterian. And one of the reasons for the building being so grand was because you had the penal laws during this time, which meant that anybody who wasn't of the Church of Ireland or Anglican faith had their rights curved. So if you were a Methodist, a Presbyterian, a Roman Catholic, you couldn't vote or stand for election. So this was founded on those ideas of having some say in civic society. But throughout our lifetime, our board has become very diverse. Um, we had some of the um, most uh, fire and brimstone characters on both sides of the religious divide here on our board at the same time. So politics and religion never came into the running of the institution. And um, there was obviously a lot of respect given to people's religious views because the one time that the poor were automatically allowed out of the house with their permission was to go to their respective places of worship, whether that was the local Roman Catholic church or your Presbyterian meeting house. So um, although there was turbulence within Belfast more generally, it wasn't really reflected within the poor house itself. When the poor house was built, what capacity was it being designed for? And at its peak, I'm sure it may have exceeded that capacity. Yeah, so when we opened in 1774, Belfast was still quite small, so we had room for about 50 people in the poor house and about 20 to 25 in the hospital wing. And within that same footprint, within 30 years, we had 450 people in a building built for 70. So throughout our lifetime in the 1820s, there were extensions added on. And then again, as Belfast grows as an industrial global city, we have more additions in the 1860s and 1870s and right into the early 1900s. Um, there was continuous redevelopment of this building. Of the building itself, what, is there anything left of the 1774 construction? Yeah, the entirety of the 1774 construction survives. It was added to, it was never uh, knocked down or taken away. So if anybody who's online and Google's Clifton House Belfast, everything that you see across the front, that magnificent Belfast brick made on site here as they were digging the foundations, um, is the original 1774 per house. So it's a remarkable survival. survival. Yeah, I'm sure then from the fish in has probably been restored in order to bring it up to standards so as it doesn't deteriorate and collapse. Yes, uh, we have a constant programme of maintenance that goes on with the building and it just makes sure that it survived for nearly 250 years. Hopefully with under our care, it will survive for another 250. Right, fantastic. Um, so the... You you are operating a blog and where you're chronicling some of the stories of the people that you came that came through the doors, and in some cases, you have I'm sure been able to track down 
where they went to, how they settled, and how their lives panned out. How successful has that project been? That pro- oh, sorry, my um, this project has been really successful. So we have two different um, aspects of what we're showing to the public. So our first is the children in the poor house series, because those who come on tours or those who are emailing with their genealogy inquiries are particularly interested in the lives of the children. And we have taken just random samples of those individuals who come into Clifton House and try and trace what happened to them. Some were more successful than others. Um, we have managed to trace uh, John Delaney, who was one of the apprentices who went out to Canada. And we do know that he got married and had a family in Juro in Ontario. Um, but we have managed to get that step further to go down this family line. And then there are others, um, like just recently, we have found a young boy who came in here at the age of nine in the 1860s. And we know from our records, he went into the South Down Militia, which was part of the British Army. And ultimately, we actually traced his family that he came back to Belfast after his stint in the army, settled down, got married and was working in the shipyards. And we've managed to actually find where he's buried and even a photograph of him as an older man, wow. and, his, and his descendants are across the globe. They're in New Zealand, they're in Canada, they're in America. It's remarkable when you can bring that story from the 1860s right the way through to the present day and to give people their history back. You know, a lot of them don't know what happened to their, the children when they were younger. When a parent died, they only know that they had their history because people don't want to talk about the fact that they were in the poor house. Mm-hmm. So it's our it's a way of us giving not only interesting information in the social history, giving people their story back. In the case of the Delaney uh, that uh, came to Canada, were you able to establish where he had come from? John Delaney uh, was born in Belfast. Right. Um, he, was a, he was a native of Belfast itself and um, had come into the poor house um, at the age of nine and then went out when he was uh, 15 or 16 to Canada because one of our board members' sons, um, had come into a wee bit of financial difficulty here in Belfast, and he decided that he was going to emigrate and start afresh there. And then a number of other apprentices followed suit and went out to Canada. The other two boys went out to the same um, man. I'm sure, Aaron, you find, as we find particularly in Canada, that on your side of the Atlantic, there's always this awareness of our big country south of us here, the US, and how everybody migrated to the US. But the relationship between Ireland and Canada has been very, very strong for hundreds of years. And the roots of Canada are very much sown in Ireland and Scotland, even though we are the quiet relation in many ways. So it's a, it's a fertile land over here when it would come to genealogy from an Irish perspective. Yes, and we get inquiries all the time and we're always open for uh, new ones coming in. So if there's any um, listeners that are tuning in today and want to uh, come to us, they can go onto our website, cliftonbelfast.com, and um, we'll be more than happy to try and help them out because it's quite surprising who used the institution. You automatically think that um, you know, these were the most destitute in society, but there were well-to-do individuals who'd managed to make their way in business, and it just happened to fall in hard times. And with no benefit system as we would have here today, there was no safety net. So it was up to the poor house and our board to provide that sort of safety net for society. So um, if you have relative relations from Belfast and the 
that greater area, I would definitely be interested in helping you out. The poor house, as you say, not everybody would want to admit or acknowledge that they may have had any connection with the poor house. I know in certain areas, the uh, life in the poor house was harsh. It was cruel. It was austere in every respect. I get the sense that there was a compassion being provided in Clifton House. Yes, and when it comes to our history, um, we don't look at it through rose-tinted glasses. You know, we did have punishments in the house. If you broke the rules, there was the black hole, which uh, people were put into in solitary confinement at times. Uh, they misbehaved and were on a diet of bread and water. But we were a wee bit more paternal, for want of a better phrase. Um, a lot of people get mixed up between ourselves as the poor house and the workhouse in Belfast that was opened by the government. And uh, the example I always use on my talks and tours is that we had beds in Clifton House in the poor house in 1774. The workhouse in Belfast um, in the main wards still had the stone flag floors with your straw mats thrown down on it in the 1920s. So we were a wee bit more paternal. And for us, when the children came in, it was about getting them an education and apprenticeship and trying to break the poverty cycle because they wanted the children to go out and have fulfilled lives and be able to support their own families. And there are a number of key figures involved in that. Probably the most famous that some of your listeners will possibly have heard of is Mary Ann Kraken, mm-hmm. who was involved with the United Irishman, but she was a social reformer. She was an anti-slavery advocate. And she championed the rights of the children in the poor house. And it's hard to believe, but in the 1820s, she's taking them from the poor house to go down to the docks, onto the paddle steamer, go around the coast to uh, Donica D. So again, she gave the children a childhood, which I mm-hmm. think was very important. Erin, we've talked about children. Were there adults in the poor house? Because again, you mentioned that people came in who had fallen on hard times in business. So, but was it predominantly children? Initially, when the Belfast Charitable Society opened the poor house, they hadn't anticipated admitting children. It was meant to be for sort of adults who had fallen on hard times or were out of work. But within a year or two, it became quite evident that the need of the children sort of was more important than the adults in terms of the demand. But there were a number of adults uh, coming into the poor house here. And a lot of them were actually widows. Um, when the main breadwinner for the family had passed away, that they were sort of suffering at home. And um, they would come into the poor house here. And at times they would bring their children with them. Um, or at other times the family would look after the children when the adult came into the poor house. And um, one of the earliest um, admissions that I found uh, in relation to a widow was actually somebody whose husband had been killed during what we would know as the American War of Independence. So she was a widow of a soldier at home in Belfast and just didn't have the means to support herself. So adults were um, a large part of the organization, but the children by the mid sort of 1810s, 1820s, formed about half of our admissions. When it comes to uh, opening hours, when when are you guys open? What are the, uh, and is there an admission? Yep, so if anybody is coming to Belfast, uh, we do our tours on a Friday, Saturday and Sunday um, over the weekends. We do a Mary Ann McCracken walking tour um, on the Fridays, which explores Belfast through her eyes and her charitable work. And then in the weekends, we have our tour of the old tour house and also Clifton Street Cemetery, which was opened by the Charitable Society in the back plot 
uh, just behind us here. But we also um, offer a number of historical talks that we can do um, at times to suit different groups, and we're happy to do them via Zoom um, on everything from the general history of the poor house right the way through to Belfast and slavery, medical history, you name it. We've been able to do the research to delve into aspects in more uh, or greater detail. Um, and I did ask, is there a fee then for, for access and entry? Yeah, so the fee for the two-hour two walking tours and the two-hour tours of the house in the cemetery are priced at £12.50 per person or £11.50 for a concession rate. Um, In terms of government funding, we've been supported through um, different initiatives COVID, but um, other than that, uh, for our charitable work, it is all self-funded. We've been a membership charity since 1752 when we were founded, and we still rely on our membership today. And anyone can join as a member, so if there's anybody in Canada who's considering it, um, have a wee look on our website. And concessions are people like me, seniors. <laughs> yes, uh, seniors, <laughs> students. Right. Erin yeah. uh, McIntyre, it's been fantastic chatting with you, learning about this and most interesting. And I can guarantee you, uh, next time I arrive in Belfast, I w- will be wanting to come and have a look at Clifton House. Oh, we we'll look forward to welcoming you then, Austin.